Hey there, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're really glad you decided to join us for our study in the Gospel of Mark. We pray that it blesses you and that your mind is blown as you encounter Jesus Christ in a fresh new way. If you're looking for more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 16. And we're going to be in verses 1 through 8 this morning. And my prayer really is that, that the resurrection of Jesus um, becomes something that you and I actually learn how to lean on in our everyday lives. And that you and I learn how to live in the power that brought Jesus out of the, out of the grave. And so we turn to Mark chapter 16. I just want to read verses 1 through 8, and then we'll get into it. When, now remember, two weeks ago when we last looked at Mark, we left Jesus in the tomb. He was crucified, and then they buried him, and that's where we ended two weeks ago. So now we pick it up here in chapter 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? Mental note, these ladies were expecting to deal with a corpse. They were not at all expecting Jesus to be risen from the dead. Verse 4, but when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? But go. Tell his disciples, and Peter, everybody say, and Peter, and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee, there you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And thus is the end of Mark's gospel. Maybe your Bibles, if you've got your Bibles open, you notice that verses 9 through 20 are probably printed in italics. At least that's the way it is in my Bible. And then you'll see above verse 9, there's a parenthetical statement. In my Bible, it reads this. It says, the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have verses 9 through 20. Does your Bible have something like that in it? You say, what is going on here? Wait a second. So Mark ends with verse 8. Let's just explain what's happening here, okay? First of all, let's say this. You and I have what God wants us to have. That Mark 16, 1 through 20 is the inspired word of God, and you and I should treat it as such. Amen? So what's going on here? What's happening? Okay. Well, here's what they're saying. Here's what, here's what they're saying. They're saying this, that the oldest manuscripts, the earliest copies that we have of Mark's gospel, 
don't contain verses 9 through 20. That, that does not mean that verses 9 through 20 were not written by Mark. Does that make sense? So here's what we're going to do, though. I'm a pastor, so we're going to treat this from a pastoral perspective, and that's this. You and I are studying Mark not because we're scholars. We're studying it because we're followers of Jesus, and we want to learn what God has for us. Amen? Amen. So let's treat it like that. I want to know what's God saying to me from Mark chapter 16, 1 through 8? What's God saying to me from Mark chapter 16, 9 through 20? And so this morning, we're going to treat it as though Mark ends at verse 8. And then next Sunday morning, which will be the last Sunday that we look at Mark, we're going to look at Mark 16, 9 through 20. And guess what? We'll treat that as the ending of Mark. Follow? And along the way, let's learn what God has for us in Mark chapter 16. Cool? So if you look at Mark chapter 16, verse 8, as the end of Mark, you would have to say, that's the dumbest ending ever. I mean, just think through this a little bit. Mark is writing this as a gospel, and we've learned already that the word gospel means good news that changes everything. And Mark is demonstrating that Jesus is the good news that changes everything. And he's done a really good job of it, hasn't he, so far? He's shown us that Jesus has authority, that Jesus has authority over demons. He's got authority over nature. He has authority over sickness. Jesus teaches with authority. And then not only that, Jesus is put to death. We saw that crucified. But now we just read Jesus has authority over death. He rose from the dead. <laughs> And if somebody can do all of that, certainly that makes him good news that changes everything. And if I can place my faith in this one and follow him, wow, that's going to make a difference. Amen? See, this is what he's saying. So you would think that given what Mark is trying to do in his gospel, that he would end on more of a triumphant note, don't you think? That he would end with like followers seeing the empty tomb and like being filled with supernatural courage and going out to preach the gospel around the whole world. You would think that's how he would end, and not with bewildered women who are so afraid they don't say anything to anybody. The end. The beauty of this is this. It's such a bad ending that it's either true or Mark's the worst writer ever. So it leads me to think it's got to be true. Because there's no way Mark's the worst writer ever. He's already written a brilliant book. So you can't tell me that he would just drop us off a cliff like this by accident. No. It has to be true. In other words, this is, this is sign again of the authenticity of Mark's gospel. Mark's telling us it really worked out this way. That these women really did this. These women, they saw the empty tomb, and they became so afraid that they were speechless, and they ran away, and they didn't tell anybody. Like, that's really how it happened. And in writing it like this, Mark does two things that are absolutely brilliant. He gives you and me hope, and he gives you and me a challenge. And that's our outline, hope and a challenge is how Mark ends. First, Mark begins with hope. 
First, he gives us hope. Do you look at verse 7? We all said it. The angel says to the women, hey, go tell the disciples and Peter. And Peter? Why would the angel mention Peter and not the other 11 disciples by name? Well, do you remember what happened the last time we saw Peter in chapter 14? Chapter 14, Peter, oh, Jesus, I'll die with you. And then an hour later, Peter falls asleep on Jesus. He can't even pray with him. And then shortly an hour after that, roughly, a slave girl identifies Peter and connects him to Jesus. And Peter denies even knowing Jesus. And he does that three times. And then the rooster crowed. And then Peter remembered that Jesus had predicted that he would do that. And Peter's heart became gripped with grief, and he melted in a puddle of tears. And this is how chapter 14 ends, Peter's failure. And you wonder, is God done with Peter? Has Peter failed one too many times that now God says, that's it, I'm done, I'm writing you off. God cancels Peter, it's over. You know, we had a nice run, Peter, we tried, but clearly you're not up for this. And so God, we're just, God's just going to move on. Is that what happens? Oh, no. The angel standing at the empty tomb says, I want you to tell the disciples and Peter. You got to go get Peter. Because why, where's Peter at? Well, Peter's where you and I would probably be, wouldn't he? Would you not be hiding in shame? I failed Jesus. I mean, what an idiot. I, I can't, I mean, I'd, I'd be beating myself up in a big way, wouldn't you? So the angel says, go tell the disciples and Peter. I understand shame. Don't you understand the voice of shame? Oh, I hear that voice often. Who do you think you are? What right do you think you have to be a preacher? Like, you, you, other people think you're so holy, and pff, we know better, Rouse. See, I know that voice, don't you? You know, I, I remember many, many years ago in my youth, I, in my high school and college, I struggled with pornography a lot, and maybe even you could say was addicted to it. I'm not sure we could debate that probably, but it was definitely a fight. The irony is that at the same time, I was also, you know, I gave my heart to Jesus at 15. And I'm in high school leading Bible studies with other high school kids. And then I go to Bible college to study to be a minister. And I'm in a Bible college leading Bible studies. And I'm in a singing group. And we traveled the country singing in churches and camps everywhere, ministering to people, right? Meanwhile, there's this dark secret going on in my life. And I can tell you I heard that voice of shame so often. What right do you think you have? You know? And then I would fall and I would confess my sin and I'd repent to the Lord. I'm so sorry, God. I'll never do it again. And you know what I discovered? That as soon as I repented, Jesus was the first one to pick me up. Have you seen that too? Jesus is the first one to pick you up. Like, everybody else is gone, and Jesus is right there. 
And then I'd find myself leading a Bible study or singing a concert somewhere and having that voice, really, I know what you did last week. And I'd hear Jesus say, you know, Doug, you left me, but I didn't leave you. And now you're back. He's so gracious, isn't he? You know, Romans says that the kindness of God leads us to repentance. The kindness of God. Romans, Romans also, or in, in Titus chapter 2, verse 12, it says it's the grace of God that teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. So the kindness of God brings me to repentance. The grace of God teaches me to say no to sin. You see, God does not whip you into shape. That's the devil's game. God graces you into shape. It's his kindness that woos you into shape. And, and you fail, and he forgives, and you fail, and he forgives. And, and, and next thing you know, your heart is absolutely his. Because nobody has been as faithful to me as he has. And I am all his, I'm all in. That's how that works. And so when the angel says, hey, tell the disciples, and don't forget Peter, that's a, that's a sign of hope, calling out to Peter, hey, Peter, I see you over there. And you might as well be able to put your name in there too, and you, and me, and, and you sitting in this seat right there. You, you know what you did yesterday, you know it. And you're thinking, I feel like I'm such a hypocrite. You are. And, and you. And you. And you. Jesus sees calling you. He loves you. And he forgives you. And so there's hope here at the end of Mark for failures and flops and screw-ups like us. And then the second thing that Mark gives to us is a challenge. There's hope and then a challenge. And the challenge is a, is a little more difficult to see. You need to, you need to be able to read this like a first century Roman would have read it in order to see the challenge. So, Lord, I hope that you would help me to please explain this. But can we put ourselves in the shoes of a first century Roman reading this? And one of the things you need to understand is this. See how Mark has made women out to be the hero at the end of the story here? We already noted this two weeks ago, that, that Mark is making women the hero. And we see the widow who gives her last two mites, and she is celebrated. And then we see last two weeks ago, we saw, um, we saw Mary breaking her alabaster jar of perfume and giving this extravagant gift to Jesus. And she is celebrated, and Jesus says, I tell you what, what she has done for me will always be talked about. Like, he literally elevates her at the very end. And then here we, have, here we have women. We noted that women were the ones that followed Jesus all the way to the cross. They were the ones that followed Jesus to the tomb. Where are the guys? In hiding. And now we see women are the first ones to witness the resurrection of Jesus. You see that? The very first ones to see it were women. Now, you need to understand, I know some of you girls are like, well, yeah, no big deal, of course, girl power, baby. Like, you guys, you guys have that, right? But you understand that it wasn't always like that, and that 2,000 years ago in first century Roman culture, they didn't make women out to be the heroes. 
And they definitely didn't write them that way. And that you understand that when Mark then is writing this, that Mark would have probably been uncomfortable having to write this because he's portraying women in a way that they just, they just didn't do. You know, have you ever watched a movie? Like, I do that sometimes. You ever watch a movie or a show, and, and you know, you can get by with one offense. Like, something can happen to you. Okay, I'll let that slide. Like, I don't know about you. For me, it's an F-bomb. Can I just say that? Like, I can watch a movie. You know what? If there's one F-bomb, all right, all right. I can let, let that slide. But then there's another one, and then another one. You know what? And after a little while, I'm like, okay, I'm done. Out. I'm not watching it anymore. You know what I mean? Like, just certain things. I have a limit. You know what I mean? And me, and I'm just like, I'm not going to, I don't need to take two hours and listen to this. Like, see what I mean? That's the response of people. That's the response of Mark's audience. Do you understand that by writing this, Mark was risking alienating the very people he was trying to reach? That, that, that they would have been like, okay, well, okay, sure, a woman did one good thing. Okay, okay, we'll get, let that slide. And then Mark keeps writing it. The, the very fact that Mark writes it says to you, this is how it happened, okay? I mean, we have a writing, actually, by Celsus. He was a second-century Greek philosopher, and Celsus was antagonistic to Christianity. And Celsus actually wrote extensively against Christianity, and he wrote even a treatise against the Gospel of Mark. And here's one of his arguments for the reason why Mark could not be legitimate. Here's what he says. He wrote, Christianity cannot be true because the written accounts of the resurrection are based on the testimony of women, and we all know that women are hysterical. I didn't say it, girls. He said it. Okay? And yes, don't, don't, I'm just the messenger, right? Don't, don't shoot the messenger. I'm just saying that's how, they, that's how they felt. That's how they saw it, Okay. And so here's a man actually using this as a reason for why Mark is not legitimate. So all that to say that when Mark ends his book in verse 8 with women running in fear, the men who first read this, their response would have been, well, yeah, of course, they're women. But then Mark has brilliantly cornered his audience with a challenge because, well, the men also failed Jesus, didn't they? And the women failed Jesus. So now I'm left with a question, how will I respond? It, will I be successful? And the honest reader has to say, heck no. I'm just, I'm just as much of a loser as these people. <laughs> There's no way I'm going to be able to stand up to the test. See? Which brings me right back to verse 7. The hope and Peter. Doesn't it? So here we are. We're all in this boat together with this amazing truth that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And they failed, and we fail, and Jesus is continuing to call us, and you, and me. Hey, I see you over there. I see you there. Follow me. And that's what he does in verse 7. 
The angel says, tell the disciples and Peter that what? He says that he is going ahead of you into Galilee. Do you see that in verse 7? You know that specific language that was used? It's military language. It's used of a general. A general goes ahead of the army, and the army follows a general. So in essence, what he's actually doing is he's inviting them to follow him. And if you think about it, that brings us right back to Mark chapter 1. So Mark is bringing us full circle right back to where he began. Mark chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. If your Bible's open, you can flip there and you can see it. Remember in Mark chapter 1, Jesus bursts on the scene and he's larger than life and he, he preaches a sermon and his first sermon is, repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. And the word repent, we learn the word repent means change the way you think. Why should you change the way you think? Well, because there's a new king in town, and he's establishing a new kingdom. And the only way for you to receive this and enter into this new kingdom and to enjoy it is it's, it's completely unlike anything else you've ever experienced. And so you need to change the way you think. Think even to be able to see it and to receive it and to, and to enter into it, see? And then what's Jesus do as soon as he challenges people to repent? The next scene, verse 17, Mark chapter 1, Jesus goes to the men and he goes, hey, you follow me. Hey, you follow me. Follow me. Follow me. And remember, we did this 12 weeks ago. I know that's a long time ago. But 12 weeks ago, we looked at Mark chapter 1 and we asked the question like, who does that? Who just walks up to people on a beach and says, hey, you follow me? Well, the person who does that is the person who's in charge. Jesus is in charge. Jesus has authority. And so Jesus says, hey, you follow me. Let's go. And so Mark begins there, and Mark ends there. Now we have Jesus not just as a preacher on a beach. We have Jesus as the one who has defeated death in the grave. And he says, and you, I see you in your shame and in your failure, I see you, and you, and you, follow me. Let's go. The question is, will you? Will you step in and say, okay, Jesus, you are exactly the one that I want to follow. You have authority, you have power, you have grace, and you exercise compassion. You see me when I, you, you don't write me off when I fail. You're with me through thick and thin. You're faithful. You beat death in the grave. Yes, Jesus, you are exactly the one I want to follow. I'm in. Will that be your response? So, the whole thing, this whole section just brings up a super um, a practical and yet powerful question that I've just been asking all week, and it's a hard question. Are you ready for a hard question? I want to just ask you a hard question, make you think. You ready? So this might make your head hurt and your heart. But here, here's the question. What what practical difference has the resurrection made in your life? You say, well, I'm a Christian because he rose from the dead. Okay, great. But like practically speaking, like, like can you point to anything in your life that is different, something different about you 
because Jesus rose from the dead, specifically. Like you would say, you know, yeah, I used to think this way, or I, I had these beliefs, or I had these attitudes, or I struggled with these thoughts, or, you know, I used to have this addiction, or this problem, but then I learned about the resurrection of Christ and how powerful it is, and now that has changed that completely, and now I don't have that anymore. I walk in a whole new level of power because of his resurrection. That's my, that's my question. Can you point to anything practically in your life that's different because Jesus rose from the dead? You say, well, that's, a, that's an unfair question. Well, not really. The first followers of Jesus very much believed that the resurrection had practical implications to their lives. The Apostle Paul, in Ephesians chapter 1, he's talking about all these things that he's praying for. For the Ephesians, he's praying for these things, praying that, that they would have eyes open to see the greatness of God. He's praying that they would see the incredible riches that are theirs in Christ. He's praying um, you know, that they would have a revelation to know God better. And Paul says this at the end of his prayer, this, it's the surpassing greatness of his power to us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. So in other words, what makes the answers to Paul's prayer possible is that Jesus rose from the dead. We have uh, in 1 Corinthians, the, to the Corinthians, Paul said this. He said, the message of the cross, it actually is the power of God. It is. So the very power of God at work in you and me, it, it, we see it in the cross and in the resurrection. He goes on to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Like, he goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, then Christians are the most pitiful people on the planet. He says that we're to, be, we're to be pitied more than anyone else if Jesus has not been risen from the dead. Isn't that something? So Paul felt like the resurrection was pretty central, didn't he? To like everything that we are as Christians. You go into Philippians, and to the Philippian believers, Paul says, I, I'm, I love this statement. He goes, I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ, and I want to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. So this is Paul's Heart cry. Do you hear his heart cry? Like, I want to know Jesus, and I want to know the power of the resurrection. I want to know that power in my life, even if it means I suffer with Jesus and die. Like, I want to know the power of the resurrection in my life. For Paul, it was a central concept, something that he counted on depended on every day. The Apostle Peter believed that the resurrection empowered Christians to endure persecution. That's 1 Peter chapter 3. 
Paul believed that the resurrection empowered Christians to live a whole new life that overcomes sin. You want, a, you want an inspirational read? Read Romans chapter 6. Whole thing. Your whole, your whole battle against sin, your ability to live in victory, is rooted in the resurrection of Christ. So you know that sin? You know that thing that you're addicted to? You know that thing that's constantly tripping you up? The secret to you overcoming it is to learn how to live in the power of the resurrection. That power will enable you to overcome that sin. That's Romans chapter 6. Um, Paul told the Thessalonians that the resurrection changes the way we grieve death and loss. It literally changes our funerals. The resurrection does. Doesn't mean we don't have funerals. Of course we do. Doesn't mean we don't grieve and feel sad. Of course we do. But our grief is completely mixed with hope. Our funerals are completely messed up because of the resurrection. See? Paul told the Colossians that he worked for them with all of the energy of Christ. Like all that power is what Paul used to serve the Colossian Christians. See what I mean? So in other words, the resurrection of Christ was, was not just a theory that these first Christians, you know, celebrated on Easter once a year, but it actually was something that they lived out every day. Like they woke up in the morning, okay, Jesus, you rose from the dead, so I'm counting on that today. I, I need that power at work in my life today. See? I mean, maybe, maybe just come at this from a slightly, a slightly different angle. Maybe we should just ask this question. How aware are you of the power of the resurrection in your life? See, how often does the power of the resurrection factor into your decision-making and how you face the challenges of your life? Just, just asking, how often, how aware are you? Because clearly it's central to our faith, isn't it? And so if it's this central to our faith, shouldn't this be something that we talk about, count on every day? Like, like shouldn't it be the answer to, oh, you're struggling with this? Do you, do you know that Jesus rose from the dead? Let's, let's pray about that. And let's, let's rely on the power that brought Jesus out of the grave to help you with this problem right here. Let's do that. See what I mean? How, how often do we consciously apply the resurrection to our daily lives and our struggles? That's, that's simply my question. Because I, I got this. I got a feeling it works like this. If, if I don't talk about it, I don't own it. And if I don't own it, it doesn't have any power in my life. If I don't talk about it, I don't own it. And if I don't own it, it doesn't have any power in my life. So, so the secret and the key to applying the resurrection to your daily life is to actually apply the resurrection to your daily life. Like, I'm going through this struggle. I'm facing this need. I have this problem. I will trust in the power that brought Christ out of the grave, and I'm going to apply that power at, to this situation right now and trust that it will make a difference. See, that's how it works, friends. 
Paul told the Corinthians that he came to them in weakness and he resolved to talk only about Christ, his, his crucifixion and his resurrection. And in doing so, Paul didn't preach, he said, with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the power of God. So their faith rested not on Paul's wisdom and his fancy preaching, but their faith rested on the power of God. And how did all that happen? Because Paul only had one sermon. And it was the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the only sermon Paul preached. And he trusted in that, and he kept preaching it, kept preaching it, kept preaching it. And people weren't impressed with Paul's wisdom. They weren't impressed with how great of a preacher Paul was. But they saw the power of God, and their faith rested on the power of God that brought Jesus out of the grave. And I'm saying you and I can live the same way. So here's what I want to leave us with. Karis, you can come and play. Well, I just want to leave us with this little, maybe, exercise, this, this little statement, if you would. So it's this. It's just a simple statement. If Jesus rose from the dead, then blank is definitely possible. How, how would you fill in that blank in your own life? And, and I'm asking this because I'm, I'm asking you to to actually apply the power of the resurrection to that issue in your life. If Jesus rose from the dead, well then, blank is definitely possible. And, and I believe that in doing so, we're actually applying the power of the resurrection to our lives. We're, we're, we're gonna take it out of the realm of theory we're going to take it out of the realm of religion where we just talk about it on Easter once a year and we're actually going to begin to trust in it every day. Like, if Jesus rose from the dead, then this is certainly possible. Are you with me? Because Mark ends his book with this hope and a challenge that and you, even you, his eye is on you. Jesus says, follow me. Let's go. Are you in? And when we follow him, one of the things we do is we apply the resurrection. That's part of what it means to follow Jesus. It doesn't mean I show up to church once in a while. Following Jesus means daily living in the power of the resurrection that Jesus has bought for you and me. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, check us out at newriverchurch.org.